The following is a presentation of Gallery Church Downtown, part of a family of neighborhood churches seeking to display God's greatness to the world. For more information, please visit gcbdowntown.com. Bibles, the Black Bibles, um, the reading is on page 115, 1115, Acts 21. After we had torn ourselves away from them, we put out to sea and sailed straight to Kos. The next day, we went to Rhodes and from there to Patara. We found a ship crossing over to Phoenicia, went on board and set sail. After sighting Cyprus and passing to the south of it, we sailed on to Syria. We landed at Tyre, where our ship was to unload its cargo. We sought out to the disciples there and stayed with them seven days. Through the Spirit, they urged Paul not to go to Jerusalem. When it was time to leave, we left and continued on our way. All of them, including wives and children, accompanied us out of the city, and there on the beach we knelt to pray. After saying goodbye to each other, we went aboard the ship, and they returned home. We continued our voyage from Tyre and landed at where we greeted the brothers and sisters and stayed with them for a day. Leaving the next day, we reached Caesarea and stayed at the house of Philip the Evangelist, one of the seven. We had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. After we'd been there a number of days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. Coming over to us, he took Paul's belt, tied his own hands and feet with it, and said, The Holy Spirit says, In this way, the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem will bind the owner of this belt and and hand him over to the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there pleaded with Paul not to go to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, Why are you weeping and breaking my heart? I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. When he would not be dissuaded, we gave up and said, The Lord's will be done. After this, we started on our way up to Jerusalem. Some of the disciples from Caesarea accompanied us and brought us to the home of Nason, where we were to stay. He was a man from Cyprus and one of the early disciples. When we arrived at Jerusalem, the brothers and sisters received us warmly. The next day, Paul and the rest of us went to see James and all the elders were present. Paul greeted them and reported in detail what God had done among Gentiles through his ministry. When they heard this, they praised God. Then they said to Paul, You see, brother, how many thousands of Jews have believed, and all of them are zealous for the law. They have been informed that you teach all the Jews who live among the Gentiles to turn away from Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or leave according to our customs. What shall we do? They will certainly hear that you have come, so do what we tell you. There are four men with us who have made a vow. Take these men, join in their purification rites, and pay their expenses so that they can have their heads shaved, and everyone will know there is no truth in these reports about you, but that you yourself are living in obedience to the law. As for the Gentile believers, we have written to them our decision that they should abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. The next day, Paul took the man and purified himself along with them. Then he went to the temple to give notice of the date when the days of purification will end and the offering would be made for each of them. When the seven days were nearly over, some Jews from the province of Asia saw Paul at the temple. They stirred up the whole crowd and seized him, shouting, Fellow Israelites, help us. This is the man who teaches everyone everywhere against our people and our law in this place. And besides, he has brought Greeks into the temple and defiled this holy place. 
They had previously been Trophimus, the Ephesian in the city with Paul, and assumed that Paul had brought him into the temple. The whole city was aroused, and the people came running from all directions. Seizing Paul, they dragged him from the temple, and immediately the gates were shut. While they were trying to kill him, news reached the commander of the Roman troops that the whole city of Jerusalem was in an uproar. He at once took some officers and soldiers and ran down to the crowd. When the rioters saw the commander and his soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. The commander came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. Then he asked who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd shouted one thing and some another. And since the commander could not get at the truth because of the uproar, he ordered that Paul be taken into the barracks. When Paul reached the steps, the violence of the mob was so great he had to be carried by the soldiers. The crowd that followed kept shouting, get rid of him. May God bless the reading of his word. Incredibly long passage of scripture, um, but I want to summarize my point to all of you right after the scripture is read this morning, and then I want to make my case for the rest of our time. But let me just say, out of this particular passage of scripture, what I felt like the Holy Spirit was laying on me the most to say to you today is that you can be confident. So would you say that, I can be confident? All right, and for the rest of you that didn't say anything, you can be confident as well, okay? I, I know that a lot of times we're not necessarily fully a call-and-response church, so we come from different backgrounds, and, but today I want you to understand that we can be confident. We can go through all kinds of different trials and all kinds of things in life, and you and I can walk into it with confidence. We can go around all the different voices in our life with confidence. We can face all kinds of different types of scenarios with all different types of confidence. But I feel like what we are struggling with in the majority of our faith is confidence. We don't know when to speak. We don't know when to let people know that we believe in Jesus. We don't know when to even invite people to church anymore. We just have lost our confidence to know what to do, when to do it, how to do it, And I don't think that that's what Jesus wants us to live like. I believe that you and I can function with an incredible sense of confidence. Last week, um, my dear friend Leon Pinkett was here. How many of you were here last Sunday to hear Pastor Leon, also City Councilman Leon? He did an incredible job in communicating one of my favorite chapters in all the Bible. I was so disappointed when I realized he was teaching that chapter because when we were planning out the year, I was looking forward to teaching Ephesians chapter 20. But after listening to him this week, I have to say I am so grateful he did. Um, And if you have not listened to the message or you are having a hard time this morning recalling everything he shared, I would encourage you to re-listen to his podcast last week. There are so many amazing truths in it that I feel like that he tied in for our family's faith journey. It is worth meditating upon and and to kind of move ahead with. But one of the things that he said that I think was kind of... Um, important for us, but yet I'm kind of putting my own twist on it this morning, is found in Ephesians 20, verse 31, which I think preps us for Ephesians chapter 21. And I put it on a slide for you. I feel like your part, as with the disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane, is not to fall asleep. When we look at Paul's incredible encouragement to the church in Ephesus before he boarded the ship to go on this epic journey back to Jerusalem. He was encouraging them to stay awake. Um, 
uh, a great pastor in the Philadelphia area named Eric Mason started Epiphany Church in Philadelphia. He actually released a book recently called Woke Church, um, which is a word that I can't necessarily use in a sentence and it sounds normal, but when you hear Pastor Mason share it, I mean, he is literally asking the church to just literally breathe with your eyes open and be alive. Like, how do we walk around with this um, sense of being alive and alert? And, I, and I'm coming to find out that my responsibility as a pastor on a regular basis in the rhythm of every week in the conversations I have with some of you individually or if we're meeting with a group of leaders is it is like my responsibility to constantly awaken us to the fact that we must be a people of prayer. It's that simple. If I was to try to explain my job description to a four-year-old or a five-year-old, I think the simplest thing I can say to them is, I just help people remember they can talk to God. And that might be the simplicity that some of you need to receive, Acts chapter 21, is that you can talk to God, knowing that he's going to talk back to you, that then gives you confidence to know that you heard from the creator to live your life. Not many of us in this particular room are going to live an Apostle Paul life. I believe that most of us can read through the book of Acts, and Paul does not need to be your example. Because you're not going to go on epic journeys around the world and share the gospel of Jesus Christ. Actually, we have a young lady from our church right now in Japan that's serving the Lord faithfully. That I would say maybe there's a little bit of Paul that she could reflect upon. But for the rest of us, we're going to be like everybody else in this book of Acts. The people that welcomed somebody into their home, the people that prepared a meal, the people that went out to serve, the people that were just alert in in talking about Jesus as Lord to other people. The majority of us are going to be the side characters in the book of Acts. And I want us to see that, that they too had a sense of confidence in the things that God was asking of them. And so as we step into Acts 21, um, it's funny this week, your, my car, well, my wife's car that she drives regularly, my car is a 2004 Camry with 286,000 miles on it. So there's no Bluetooth technology in that car. Let me just tell you, all right, um, it, it, it's a thank you technology that just gets me from one place to the next. But I sat down in the car with my wife the other day to travel to take my son somewhere, uh, most likely a hockey game, and um, we... My, my phone connected before anybody else's phone in our car connected to our sound system. And this weird soundtrack came on, and my son and my wife were like, what is that? And I'm like, oh, that's the Lord of the Rings soundtrack. Um, <laughs> and they were like, what were you listening to that for? Um, because when I was reading, how many of you in here even know the Lord of the Rings movies? I, I know that when I was your age, um, it was a big thing. Um, I don't know if, for some of you, if... Because when I was in my 20s, it was like a really big thing. But for some of you, you're like, oh, wow, you're so old. It's, we're Harry Potter people. Um, uh, but uh, the one thing that always drove me in these films was the orchestra. I mean, there is some amazingly powerful, moving music Because what else could get you through a three-hour-long film where you just watch a group of individuals walk across mountaintops, right? I mean, there's so many scenes that were like 15 minutes long, and all it was was a snowstorm and them walking gruffly together, and, and nobody was talking to anybody. It was just the journey to music. 
And so I decided to read Acts 21 slowly, just with Lord of the Rings music. Because as Luke is writing this, that's what came to mind. Seeing Paul hugging and embracing a group of people at the end of Acts 21, and then leaving that space, and the music starting, and next thing you know, they're on a ship, and they're sailing, and Cyprus is on the right and they're turning the corner, and they're heading down the tire, they're going on this, and I'm sitting here thinking that if Luke was put to a film, that the orchestra behind Lord of the Rings would most likely be the music that would be playing behind a lot of this, because you're watching people that are on a mission to get somewhere that's highly important that they get there, because you and I are benefiting from the fact that they went on this epic journey, And they were obedient to the places they needed to go. And they had these moments where they would gather in these random communities and have these moments inside of homes or inside of synagogues where they would talk about the reason for their journey. And then they were off on another journey. And it's much like the rhythm of how Tolkien wrote his books. And so when we step into Acts 21, I want you to, to understand that I believe that Luke isn't writing this so that you and I feel like we have to be Paul. Luke is writing this so that you and I understand that there was a great work completed in Jesus, but we are still a moving people. Um, That doesn't mean that we have to go all the way around the world. Part of the reason why we are still lighting our Advent candles, and we didn't just limit it to the days leading up to Christmas Eve, um, is because this is a symbol of what the church really is. We are in Advent, all the time. We are between the ascension of Jesus Christ and his return. This is where we live. And if you and I know our place in history, if we know exactly where we are, I believe you and I can function in confidence in whatever occupation, whatever type of student life you have, that you and I can be confident that Jesus is not only the Christ, the Savior, but he is also what? Lord. Can we all say Lord out loud together? One, two, three. Lord. Lord. It is a big difference between you and I just believing in Jesus as our Savior and us believing that Jesus is also our Lord. So often in the book of Acts, when they're talking about Jesus, you find it is always Lord Jesus or the Lord Jesus Christ or Jesus Christ our Lord because if you and I know that our confidence comes from our master, our authority, the one above every other name has asked us to do something, then, oh my goodness, what confidence could we then have? And so Paul here is approached by somebody that takes his belt Now, I promise you, if I ever see any of you come up to me and grab my belt during a church service, I will probably respond physically towards you, all right? I just want you to know that. Don't try me after the service. I got to a brown belt in karate, and I don't mind pulling my hamstring to prove it, okay? All right? And so, but the one thing that was very common, especially to a Jewish audience, because these visitors to Paul were most likely Jewish people, that were used to prophets like Ezekiel and and Jeremiah and Isaiah, and there were symbolic gestures that were very common. Now, there's a huge difference between the magic of these gestures, 
which, for instance, you can go to certain places around the world where they will fashion, whether through wax or through straw, um, images of people so that they can speak ill over them or stick them with needles or set them on fire because they are wanting to do some sort of magical mischief or cause harm through some sort of thing we might call as witchcraft or sorcery. This is not what's happening in this particular passage of Scripture. This is very much something like what Ezekiel would have done when he was, um, was uh, he was taking a brick and he actually said, this is going to be like Jerusalem. Or when Jeremiah actually um, took a pot and smashed it and said, this is going to be like Jerusalem. And then my favorite was Isaiah, who walked around naked and barefoot, um, which I am highly grateful for. These are not teaching qualities in the New Testament church um, and for your benefit as well as mine. All right. But yet they were symbols. It was a way of bringing the future to the present. They were giving a glimpse of what was coming so that they were not surprised when it came. And when Israel literally found themselves being walked out in exile naked, they were like, oh yeah, Isaiah told us this was going to happen. We were warned. We were spoken to. And so as we find Paul in this passage, Agabus has come to him providing a visual aid to something that I want you guys to understand. Paul has already known this. He's not being told for the first time you're going to suffer. He's not being, it's not being revealed for the first time that Paul is going to be beaten or drug out or, and in many ways, which we're talking about in just a minute, he's already experienced these things. But what is happening here is that The Spirit is moved in this particular man. Luke is making it very clear that the Spirit brought him to Paul. This guy is not functioning on his own. This was something that God wanted to do in the life of the early church for everybody that was present for this. Not just for Paul's benefit, but for those watching and those that were interacting. And God was doing something in all of them, but the people like Argivus and others were interpreting it totally different than the way Paul was. They were wanting it to stop Paul from getting to Jerusalem. They were like, look, if you do this, if you go to Jerusalem, this is going to happen to you. And Paul didn't say, oh, no, it isn't. He's like, yeah, I know. And by the way, I'm ready to die. That's how confident Paul was. But the thing that I love about this is that Paul was 100% confident even when prophetic words were coming to him, what obedience was looking like. And I'll talk about this at the very end just for a minute, but I think it's really important for many of us. Many of you are really growing in your prayer life. You're growing in your gifts that God's given you, and you're no longer as intimidated to begin to say, I am also spirit as well as I am a physical human being. And there is a connection between the spirit of the living Christ, who is our Lord, and his relationship to me. And you're starting to get more and more comfortable saying, I spoke to God in prayer and he said this to me. And so that is now going to lead to God speaking to us in prayer to speak to one another. And if we're not careful and we don't follow biblical principles, what will happen is, for instance, one of you will say, I feel like God has asked me to do this, but God will use a brother or sister in this room to come up to you and say, you know, I hear that you're wanting to do this, but I felt like God was saying to me that you are going to experience this if you do it. 
And then, rather than just stopping with me share, or that person sharing with you what God has said to them, they are then going to feel the burden to interpret it. And there's danger in that if we don't follow biblical principles, which we don't have time to get into today, but there is always a group of witnesses to a prophetic word. There's always other people that can say, yes, I believe this is from the Spirit. Yes, I believe or agree in this interpretation. And I want you and I to understand something. We are to talk confidently to one another. But we also need to be obedient to what the Holy Spirit is really saying to all of us. And Paul here, even though the audience around him was interpreting this as don't go, He was interpreting it as, no, I am actually on the path of obedience, and your words are actually affirming what God has already told me. And they supported it. And they got behind it. And they even had this plan of action where they said, okay, now that you're here and now you're getting ready to go in, we're going to send you through an old custom of purification. But let me say this about Luke and his writing here for a minute. I put this on a slide because I want you to be able to read it. Luke in his writing is quite happy to say that these warnings were given in the spirit without telling us how he reconciles that with the fact that Paul is confident that God wants him to go. We can go back if we could power read everything from Acts 1 to Acts 21, and you and I cannot find a place where Luke says that Paul was sitting with God and God came to Paul and said, you have to go to Jerusalem now. We just have Luke saying, Paul says, I got to go to Jerusalem. So somewhere in the story, we're missing out on the intimate moment where Paul got 100% confident he had to get to Jerusalem. And so I don't know if Paul left that out intentionally. I'm not sure exactly in his writing as he was being led by the Spirit to record this story for us. But I think it's vitally important for us to understand some things about Paul. Paul prayed. Paul fasted. Paul spent tons of time in isolation. And he wasn't just talking to himself. He was spending time in intimate, quality time with his Father in heaven and was listening to what the Holy Spirit was saying. And so as a pastor and as my personal testimony to you, I wrote this out in response to this. Sometimes the Spirit of the Lord Jesus Christ gives people enough information to know what is likely to await them, but leaves them with the responsibility to decide whether or not to go anyway. As I sit down with people in my office or we sit across coffee or we share meals together, the majority of us are struggling with whether or not we want to obey. It's not, I haven't heard anything. It's, do I obey what I know to be true? So the majority of my pastoral narrative with you, the majority of the time that you and I spend time together and we're reading the scriptures or we're moving forward, and even what I'm hearing from our growth community leaders of their conversations with many of you, it's generally more shaped around, does God really want me to do that? Not, I don't know what God wants me to do. And so for us as a church family, I want us to grow in our confidence that if God has said, then praise God, God said And there should be no higher authority. There should be no greater sense of purpose or job description that you and I could ever receive than to look at somebody in the face and say, I know God is asking me to do this. But that doesn't mean that you're the Paul that has to go on an epic journey around the world to take the gospel to everybody. It might mean that you just open up your home. Like, I don't know what it means. I just know God asked me to open up my home and feed people. 
Well, then do it. How can we help? I ask people many times in conversations when they say to me, um, well, what's the next step? And I'm like, well, um, have you read the scripture from Sunday? What did the Holy Spirit tell you? And they'll usually have some response. Well, do you have the courage to obey? And then the last step of it, then how can I help you? So it's like, I need to learn to read the scriptures, ask the Holy Spirit what's going on, what is my obedience, and then look at each other and say, how do we help? There's a simple way for us to begin to do that. Okay, so let me come back to Paul for a minute, because I want you to understand what Paul's already experienced. He's confident that he's got to get to Jerusalem. He's interpreting the prophecies different than everybody else around him, and he's walking confidently there, but he has already been through riots in Antioch, He's already been through a stoning in Lystra. He's already been beaten in Philippi. He's been in more riots in Thessalonica. He was run out of Berea, and he experienced court cases and anti-Jewish violence in Corinth, and he escaped a 25,000-person chanting pagan crowd in Ephesus. I think his resume is okay to walk to the temple. I don't think he was shocked at what he was getting ready to walk into. He is a seasoned veteran at being abused because of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is a seasoned veteran at something that you and I struggle with. And can I just say this? I do not like being misunderstood. It bothers me when I say something and somebody misinterprets the meaning behind it. And I don't know about you, but that, that comes out in all different types of relationships, whether in marriage, with my kids, or with you even. There's been times on Sundays I've said something from the stage that I thought was clear, and then I'll get an email or a phone call from one of you, and I'm like, oh, wow, you heard that. It's, it's, it's difficult to be misunderstood. But Paul knew what it was like to be misunderstood. So now as he's heading into Jerusalem, what had been happening in Jerusalem according to Acts 21? Thousands of Jews were following Jesus Christ. Can I get an amen to that? All right. This this was what was happening in Jerusalem. Thousands upon thousands of people were realizing that Jesus was the Messiah, that Jesus was paying for the salvation of their lives, but they were still struggling. They needed to be discipled more into what it was like to be a Jewish person following Jesus. So naturally, in our immaturities, on many occasions, we take one truth and we take a truth from something else and we try to mesh it together. And a lot of times there's all kinds of misunderstandings if there's nobody around us helping us to make sense of it. But the phrase zealous for the law is mentioned in Acts 21. It's mentioned multiple places throughout the scriptures. And these were not anti-Jesus people. These were Jesus people that were zealous for the law. So they, they wanted the cross and the resurrection and the life, but they just had a hard time of saying, Moses, you, can't, you don't quite have as strong a hold on me now that Jesus is here. And so they have been, in which I feel like is an important situation for us, I put the word rumors on a slide, because it is still as detrimental in the church today as it was back then for Paul is that people share gossip or slander. And let me just tell you this. Slander many times is telling somebody the truth with the intent to harm somebody else. I've experienced that. When we started allowing women to teach more regularly on Sunday mornings, we've had women teaching ever since our church was 
origin and its foundation, but when we officially started saying there's women elders in our church and women are teaching regularly in this church, you should have seen the responses I got from pastors in the city and the area and around the nation who were hearing rumors, and they were only talking to each other, and they never called me. They would just talk to one another, and the pain that it caused a lot of people when if we would have just followed just what Jesus taught of how do we interact with one another, what really could have come out of it. But Paul is now a victim of rumors. And how often are rumors 100% true? Hardly ever, right? There's, like, there might be a 1% chance that a rumor could be 100% true. Because when people share rumors, they like to embellish the story. And it goes from a fish this big to a fish this big on some male fishing trip, right? Because it's like, oh, well, the little fish that I caught really isn't that passionate of a story. But the one that got away was massive, right? And so that happened to Paul because he's now being accused of things. And let me, hear, let me tell you, he was being accused of things he didn't say. He never said, forget your Jewish customs. You can look anywhere in the book of Acts in any of his, his letters. He never told them to lose their identity. He never told them to just say, forget Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Don't forget, forget about the tribe you're from, you're from. Because even in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, he says, to the Jews, I became a Jew. And he even went on one time in defense of himself saying, but I'm from the tribe of Benjamin, and that's a special tribe. And so he's now walking into a temple following purification laws to make a statement to them because he's now doing everything he possibly can to reach Jewish people. So he is going through processes that he knows don't change his standing with God, but he's doing it as a worship act to Jesus Christ because Jesus gave up everything for him. So he's now modeling that of what he's giving up for the people that have heard rumors about him. And so Paul here in this passage is literally laying himself down. Um, another just pastoral heart moment with you, and I put this one phrase in bold on a slide or one sentence. I take great comfort in Paul's uncomfortable position. When I was reading this in, the, in my responsibility in the church, it actually gave me comfort, even though I never want to be misunderstood. I never want a rumor passed about me. And by the way, I don't want my belt taken from me. Or I, 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 would, I would really hate for there to be a mob waiting for me on Front Street, waiting to beat me to death. I don't want that part of Paul's life, but I do understand. Um, I do find myself in a place where I have what I will refer to, because it's very common in our cultural language here in America right now, especially politically, you have people to the left and yet people to the right of you and generally the people that are to your farthest left are referred to as extremists and people to your farthest right are referred to as extremists and so what i have found myself like paul is i am always in the middle and i have a responsibility to hold hands with people and say let's follow jesus when we have people that have extreme views this direction and have extreme views this direction, but at Jesus, we're supposed to be one. And so even in this room right now, even just using that analogy has caused some of you to have hair stand up on the back of your neck. And I'm not saying you're an extremist if that's the case. But what I'm saying is it brings high emotion. It charges us up. Because what we're finding is, is that in the Lord Jesus, 
our struggles should be loyalty to him and not what we find passionate. Our loyalty has got to be Jesus. So as a pastor, every conversation that we have, whether it's a political view on what our government should spend its money on, or it's a, a view about what people should legislate about the choices in my life, it doesn't matter what there is, because at the end of the day, we process everything with, is this making me to be more like Jesus? If I continue this behavior, am I looking more and more like Jesus? That's my voice as a pastor, is all of us, no matter what we're passionate about. I just want to share with you guys, like this week, when I saw the video footage of the celebration of abortion to the very last moment in New York State this week, I have to tell you, I have a lot of people that have different opinions on abortion and and what women have gone through. And I have an incredible amount of sensitivity. I have cried and prayed with women that have been through a lot of different circumstances. But I, my heart broke as a pastor. Because I'm sitting here thinking, okay, that is the first of many to follow. And when I think about Jesus and I think about the things that we're facing, is like, yes, we can find some scenarios in life that we can pallet um, abortion or understand why a, a, a lady would need to have a fetus removed from her body. And we can come up with a lot of argumentations around that, positive or negative. But at the end of the day, we, as much as we have arguments about the border and we're having arguments about how to care for the elderly, we have a life issue problem. We have a, a responsibility issue problem, and there are things that are happening right now as a pastor that I'm like, Lord, I don't know if I'm the right one to lead the church through all this because the people that are the extremists hate me. And they, 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 they don't want to, but it's like how can we focus... If, if an extremist this way is a one and an extremist on this end is a ten, how do I hold hands with the five, six, sevens, the fours, threes, twos, and us say, let's make Jesus the center? Because Jesus has to be the one that we're looking to. And this is what I find Paul doing in the Jewish culture in this first century. His issue wasn't abortion at this point in time, but it was something that people were passionate about. And he was struggling to help them to see it's all about Jesus. Yes, God used Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Yes, there are traditions that we need to continue to maintain, but those don't have to be imposed on Gentiles. And by the way, we had Acts 15, where they already had a council, and they sent out a letter to everybody saying that Gentiles don't have to do these things. But yet the message hadn't gotten out in Jerusalem, and now they were looking at dragging Paul off. One other random thing that jumped out to me, and it has nothing to do with the teaching, but it's just a random fact. I know some of you just love random facts. You can get this on a trivia question. But this is the last time Paul was in a house where people welcomed him in the whole story. So when he walked out of this house to go to the temple, this was the last time he was with a friendly household of people. I don't know if he knew that. I think in his mind he thought that he would get to spend great comfortable meals around people But when he finally got to the temple and they finally locked him out of the temple, it not only was the last time he was ever in the temple, it was also the last time he was in a home where he was wanted and needed and was enjoying a meal and comfort with people. But I also must say, I was blown away with the fact that in this particular passage, Paul survived. When you see the ferociousness of the mob coming down on him, How in the world did a guard from a watchtower, a Roman soldier, watch what was happening 
go get other Roman soldiers and get to Paul before he was dead. I think that was a miracle. I think we just read a, a, a miracle story because I just know if this was the size of the room and you decided that you wanted to beat me to death, that more than likely you would succeed in doing that before the Baltimore police showed up. That might not be saying a whole lot in regards to timeliness in all of this, but here's the situation. Bryant could dial 911 right now, and you guys could kill me before the police would arrive. But I believe God wasn't done with Paul yet, and we're going to find out why next week when we come back and look at Acts chapter 22. So here's what I put as three closing statements to us today. Number one, we need to be confident. I said at the beginning, I'm saying that here at the very end, you and I need to be confident. Paul was confident in where he was to go and what he was to say. And I believe that Luke is sharing this with you and I because you and I can be confident. We can know what to say, but you and I can't accomplish that if we don't do the things that people like Paul were doing. Paul prayed regularly. Paul fasted regularly. He hung out and talked about Jesus with people around meals regularly. And if we're not doing those things, you are not going to be confident. If we don't develop those disciplines in our life, we will not be confident. And the second thing that I think is really important, prophecy is an important gift in the church, but it must be interpreted properly. There are many of you in this room, and I need you to look at me because I believe that it is true over many of you. God has said something to you, and you are not doing it because somebody told you you misheard God. Or somebody shared with you how hard it was going to be, and you were like, ah, I don't know if I want to do something that I know is going to be that hard. Let me just tell you this. God loves you no matter how you choose to use his words. You are loved. If you've made a mistake in listening to him, you are still loved. But there is so much brokenness in our city, I just can't help but to think that we could be making a stronger difference. But some of us are gripped in fear or confusion because of something somebody else said to you that then has then changed your perception of what God said to you. And we need to walk confidently in God. We need to understand prophecy. We will spend time on this as a church this year. The third thing that I want you to walk away with, so the first is we need to be confident. The second is prophecy is important, but we must interpret it properly. The third is we must love people who falsely accuse us. We do not get a pass on negative or mean-spirited people. We actually, according to Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, have to love people that fall into what category? Enemies. Say it louder, Blake. Enemies. Can you all say that? Enemies. Is there anybody on our slate that we do not get to love? The answer is no. We, do, there is, we are required. As Christ set an example of, to love people. And we are going to see next week in his beaten and flogged and probably near death, shackled self, Paul says something to this crowd, and I just want you guys to know he was exuding love to people that had just beaten him probably to within moments of his own life. And you and I as a church... We have got to mature in our ability to love people that have harmed us. We have got to mature in our ability to love people that have slandered us, gossiped about us, cheated us, uh, physically harmed us. And in Jesus Christ, we can be confident. 
We can know that our act of love towards them is a picture of Christ's great love for us, and it can help us push through all of that suffering and all of that hurt. It is not demeaning the hurt that we've experienced. It is not demeaning the suffering that we've been through. It is a healing ointment that Jesus himself said that you and I would find this great loving forgiveness of God as we learn to forgive one another. And we've, we are going to figure out ways as a church family this year to mature in our ability to love people that are incredibly difficult. Now, let me make it very personal and simple for you. There are a group of young men that I'm trying to figure out a way of ministering to in the city. Um, They will greet your car at many intersections, whether your windshield is clean or not. And, And let me just say this. They prey upon women. When I'm in the driver's seat, they will make eye contact with me And if I do the suggested no, they don't spray. But I've been in the car in the passenger seat or in the back when my wife is driving, and she's doing no, my car window is clean, and they just start spraying. I just want you to, I don't generally feel positive about that. I don't, especially when my wife one time rolled her window down and said, guys, you really need to respect, and they hit the side of our car with the wand and dented our door. I just want you to know, I see this young man every week. I know who he is. And when I drive by him, you know what I say? It's not consistent. (laughs) I just want you to know, I do not victoriously walk by him or drive by him every time I see him. There was even one time that I even tried to roll my window down and engage in conversation, and it wasn't pleasant. I wasn't saying unpleasant things. I was just trying to say, hey, can I talk to you for a minute without you spraying my car? And he didn't respond very well. That's I want to hear a story. I wanted to be able to say to him, oh, yeah, by the way, you see that dent in the door? You did that to my wife. But we forgive you. It didn't get to that. Um, But I just want to tell you guys this. On simple occasions like that, it proves what's in our hearts. It proves how much war work God needs to do to complete who we are. There's, it, it, there's just simple little ways that we get prodded, and out of the mouth the heart speaks. So what are our conversations like with each other? What are we saying to ourselves when we're in the confines of our car with people and talking to them? Are we really listening to what we're saying? Because at the end of the day, God wants us to exude in love, and we do not get a pass in certain moments to exude fruits of the world. There is nowhere in the New Testament where you and I are ever given permission to function in rage or anger or slander or gossip. That is not a a tool in our Jesus-like tool belt. We can't find that in any of the pages in the New Testament, any of the things that were written in the early letters to the early church. If anything, Paul and many other writers said, put those down and let's pick up new ones like compassion and gentleness and forgiveness and kindness and self-sacrifice and pick those tools up. And when you pick those up, then we actually can wield a different conversation about a resurrected Lord and Savior to everyone around us. So we need to be confident. We need to learn how to handle prophecy. And you and I need to learn to excel at loving people that are falsely accusing us. Let's pray.